All right. Well, good morning. You guys excited to be in church? It's Thanksgiving. We're all together. It's not nice outside, but it is cooking in here. This is so nice. Do you guys ever think, why don't I just stay at home and watch something online or a podcast and listen to some worship music? And I'll tell you what, the church is such a beautiful thing, is it not? Like the body of Christ is so designed that we need each other, that our giftings make this beautiful bride that that he just lavishes his love upon as we gather together. Isn't that so cool to you guys? I absolutely love that image. And in this place, we're just going to be celebrating Thanksgiving together. And, and I really encourage you in just this moment, let's just pause. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to speak through us. And the Holy Scriptures are our guidebook in the world. And there's something so beautiful about saying, I actually surrender my life to your direction and your guidance. I come under control of your will, and I, I trust you completely with your word. And as we teach the word, it has power when we surrender to it. There's something so beautiful about that. It has incredible power throughout the generations. It is unshakable, and it's beautiful. So let's just pause for a moment. Let's pray. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us all individually in this place. God, we, we love your word. Jesus, we thank you that it speaks to every one of us, God. But God, you also speak to us uniquely and individually through your spirit. So God, we ask that both aspects of your spirit would be powerfully at work within us, God, both corporately and individually. God, we love your word. We love your church. We love you. Thanks for this beautiful day. Amen. Well, the roots of Thanksgiving are absolutely fascinating. There's been different celebrations of the harvest for centuries and centuries, but in the early 1600s, something very unique happened. And we've all heard the story at elementary school, perhaps in Sunday school. There was a group of pilgrims who essentially were just like religious refugees that came from England, about 153 of them on a ship called the Mayflower. And they arrived in the U.S., and it was the middle of winter, it was a terrible time to arrive. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have shelter. And as a result, that first winter was terrible. Many of them starved to death in the ship, the only source of shelter. There was a sickness that went around the ship. They believe it was pneumonia, but many people died of this as well. It was a horrible first experience in the New World. But what happened was the Wampanoag was a local native tribe, and they came and they helped them out. They saved the remaining pilgrims' lives. They taught them how to farm. They taught them how to harvest seafood. They taught them basically how to live in the new world. And three years later, after their first successful harvest, they invited the Wampanoag over, and they had a celebration together. Now listen to this. There was 90 Wampanoag that came. They brought five deer with them. The pilgrims brought the food that they taught them how to grow and how to harvest. And for one week, they danced together. They wrestled. They played games and they prayed together. Man, this is the kingdom of heaven, is it not? They wrestled together. That's that's brotherhood. I I guess that could also be sisterhood. (laughs) But that is a beautiful image dancing together. Oh my goodness. And listen to this description of the kingdom of heaven. And this beautiful picture of Thanksgiving fits so perfectly. This is in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. We're going to be studying the book of Revelation today. Obviously not in great depth because we've only got, well, 45 minutes-ish. 
But in this place, we're going to be looking at just this revealed kingdom. John, who is in prison on the island of Patmos, was just boiled in hot oil. And so he's laying on the floor of this prison cell. He would have been full of infections. He would have been in incredible pain, probably near the point of death. And Jesus shows up. And sometimes we look at these characters. Sometimes we think of the disciples and of Jesus And we don't really realize the depth of relationship and the depth of what's being spoken here. Jesus and John were really close. At one time, John leaned back upon Jesus and spoke to him. The King James Version says that he put his head to Jesus' bosom. That's a snuggle. They were close. Jesus and John were really close. They were like brothers. So in the midst of this severe pain and trial, Jesus shows up in his prison cell. And listen to this image. It's Revelation 21. It might be good if you have your Bibles here to take them out. It's always good to just dog your pages and and circle important parts. That's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I'd like you to circle this if your Bible's open. And there was no longer any sea. This sounds kind of weird to a 21st century Canadian audience, but it would have meant a lot to John in that prison cell. We'll get to that in a moment. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, so John knew Jesus well. But Jesus was being very clear that, John, I love you, but this word is not just for you. Write it down. This is also for my children throughout the generations, this beautiful image of hope that I'm about to reveal to you. It's an interesting thing that in this non-physical description, Jesus mentions that there will no longer be any sea. To John, this would have been well understood because the sea was a Jewish metaphor for separation It's often used as well for death or chaos. In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for division. And here's why. The ancient Hebrews did not develop a sea trade. Their coastline was rugged. The Mediterranean was violent. The storms came from the Mediterranean. So the sea represented this cold, treacherous body of water that separated nations. They wouldn't dare get on the sea because there were countless of their dead in that sea. They didn't have compasses. It basically was a separation between them and other nations. And so it became this powerful metaphor for separation. And in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is speaking of, there will be no separation of the nations. This is beautiful. No race, just his children. This is constant throughout the entire book of Revelation. Listen to this. This is Revelation 7. It said this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Oh, picture this. This image that John gets to see. There's a multitude of people that's so enormous no one could count. It is 
stretching as far as the eye could see. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, this is the kingdom. It's perfect unity. There's no race. It's just the human race. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And John would have just rejoiced at this image. We need to fight for this. And we get to fight for this. When Jesus told us to pray and taught us how, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the kingdom we should be contending for. And this is a kingdom that our world desperately needs the church to institute. We live in a world where there is so much separation. The U.S. is riddled with protest right now as we speak. We've all seen it. There's been countless shootings of African-American men by the police. It's revealing a heart that just views outward appearance, and it reveals a deep prejudice that the world is looking and saying, like, that's just not okay. There's athletes now that won't stand for the national anthem. It's becoming a big deal. A bunch of people have different opinions on if they should be standing or not standing. They say it's a protest against the police state. Right now, we're watching a presidential candidate running on a platform of separation, and luckily, we can just watch it from a distance and don't have to vote, am I right? But the platform actually involves a wall. It is separation at its finest. It involves a Muslim registry. It involves a policy to allow no refugees. It involves complete separation. And the church is completely on board with this. Philip Yancey called him out and said, are you kidding me? This is the opposite of the gospel. This is the opposite of the kingdom we're praying for. And we in Canada also live with deep scars. In one of our northern communities, a little town called Apawatiskat, 11 youth attempted suicide in one night. I want you to imagine this. There's less youth in that community than our church. Imagine if 11 kids in our church attempted suicide in one night. The alarm bells would be ringing. What caused such great hurt to allow something like that to happen? There was 101 attempts in two months. You see, they're living in terrible poverty. There's terrible housing. The drinking water is subpar. There's drug and alcohol abuse that's through the roof. And so many times people look upon those communities and say, then just stop using drugs. Stop abusing alcohol. But that's not the case. In 2012, the Aboriginal People Study found that the main cause of their deep pain is the residential school experience. An entire generation of kids was removed from their families and placed in homes They lost their families and parents. They lost their culture. They lost their grounding in the world. And then when they left, they had to raise their own families without ever having been parented. This causes generations of damage. You see, it's not their fault. They need our love and respect, and they need our support. 
And globally, we live in a deeply divided world. We went to Africa in a Muslim village called Garbatula, and they were so afraid of Christians. They were terrified of us. We were the first white people that many of them had ever seen. They've heard hundreds of stories that paint us as the devils, they called us. Since 9-11, there's been one million Muslims killed in attacks from the West. But each one of those Muslims would have a story, a family, a circle of friends. So each death would spread out to hundreds and paint a picture of the West. And so we went to this church where there was a few converts to Christianity. And one girl, she said, they, they hate us. They think we're devils. And I have a really great plan. This is what she said. She said, I know what we'll do. She said, we'll invite them over for dinner so that they'll see we're not devils. We're actually human beings. <laughs> I was like, what? I was blown away. We live in the West where our society views the Muslims as the devils, the source of terror. We view them the way that they view us. You see, we live in a world with a vast metaphorical sea where nations are divided. People groups are divided. And it's destroying us. It actually is taking humanity and dividing it and creating hate and fear and division. But we have a great hope. We are the bearers of the greatest news. Acts 17 says this, From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. From one man, we are all one blood. We're all one blood. There's not different races. There's the human race. Oh, the genome project revealed some crazy things. It revealed that we can trace our roots along our Y chromosome, and it dates back to one single mother and one father. It all but proves the creation narrative of Adam and Eve. But it also reveals that we are all brothers and sisters. It reveals that we are all one blood. And listen to this. This is fascinating. Oftentimes, we in the West, we're so ethnocentric. So often we just view the world through, the, through a very white lens, through a very Canadian lens. We look at the scriptures and we sort of view it through the way that we sort of look upon the world. But in Genesis 5, 2, the King James Version puts it in a way that makes more sense to me. It says, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. That word Adam actually means ready or red-faced. He was not white. He was called red face. Jesus was not white. Moses, not white. Abraham, not white. Santa Claus, white. <laughs> but his creator was Coca-Cola. You see, being so ethnocentric, what it does is it creates an us and a them. And it does not exist in Scripture. And it creates division. But we're all brothers and sisters, and there will be a day where there will be no separation at all. And this, this is the image of the book of Revelation. So John, I want you to imagine this, is laying on that prison cell. 
He is in so much pain. Imagine how angry he was. He watched all of his friends get killed. They skinned Thomas alive. They dragged Mark behind horses. They crucified Peter upside down. How full of hate would John be in that moment? What are they doing to us because we're Christians? He would have been so angry. Saul is out there as he speaks, and he is dragging Christians out of their homes, and they're stoned alive in the streets. John would have been angry. And Jesus walks into his prison cell and shows him a picture that presents so much hope that it completely changes his worldview. And it's not just an image for John at that time. He said, write it down. This is for all my kids. Hope is incredibly powerful. They did a a rat study, it's called. A researcher placed rats in a bin with high walls and water in the bottom to see how long the rats could swim for. They found that rats would live an average of 15 minutes, and then they would drown. But then in the second study, the researcher took different rats, obviously, and placed them in the bin. And just before 15 minutes happened, he took them out, he dried them off, he gave them something to eat, and then he put them back into the water. The second group of rats then swam for 60 hours. 15 minutes with no hope of survival, 60 hours thinking, I got rescued once, it could happen again. Hope is the difference. Hope is incredibly powerful. You see, I've got great news for you, and that revelation reveals our future. And so as a result, we don't need to fear man. We don't need a wall. We don't need guns. We don't need to keep refugees away. We don't have to live in fear and hatred. Remember Stephen as he's getting martyred. He's getting stoned to death. And he is able to see an image of the kingdom of heaven. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And as he looks up, what does he get to see? The same image that we're about to read. And what happens to Stephen? His face shines like an angel. And he says, forgive them, Father. For they don't know what they're doing. He has the same attitude as that of Christ. Because he gets to see an image and his future. Listen to this. What I'm about to show you is amazing. This is going to blow your mind. Revelation 4, it said, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns, so it's 24 elders, and they lay down their crowns. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and having their being. Thinking, what in the world does that mean? That's you. That's me. We're there. In this description, that's us. That's actually you. See, the throne exists outside of time. The throne exists before our time. It exists during our time and after our time. It exists completely outside of our understanding of time. So your future is also your present in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, 
In Revelation 1, it says that he's made us a kingdom of priests and elders. And as Jesus died and the veil was torn, the priesthood of all believers is our inheritance. And they're clothed in white. In Revelation 19, in the marriage feast of the Lamb, the saints are dressed in white and are wearing crowns. And these are his children. The reason why they're wearing crowns is Jesus said, because now you will rule and reign with me. In this description, it also says that there are 24 thrones around the throne. And in apocalyptic literature, 24 represents the entire body. So in other words, this means all of us. All of his children are around his throne. That's us. Jesus told the 12 apostles that this was going to happen. In Luke 22, he says this, And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You will be there, and this is your future, and it's also your present, and it changes everything. So to John, who's afraid and tired and angry, he sees his future. And in his future, this beautiful image, he's worshiping with every people and every nation and every tribe. And there is no sea. There is no separation. Oh, the hope that this would have brought John. This is bliss. And because Jesus told us to pray for this kingdom coming to earth, because he said pray for this every day, we know that it's not impossible or he wouldn't have asked us. It's extremely possible. And we're told to pray for our enemies because here is what we're doing. When we pray for our enemies, what we're doing is we're inviting his kingdom where there's no separation and we're inviting it into our hate. That's what we're doing. There was a girl who came on the ark and one of the first days she came up and said, I have a huge problem. She said, I hate Somebody in my family. She told me who it was. And so I just said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to pray for that person every day. I said, I want you to pray for that person for 10 minutes every morning. And she started to do it. And Friday morning, as we were about to leave, she came up to me and she said, something crazy happened. She said, I love her now. And I said, oh my goodness. She said, how did you know this was going to happen? And I said, I don't know, it's just it's what the Bible tells us to do. <laughs> it's truth. When you invite the kingdom into our hate, light destroys darkness every time. You see, here's the thing, is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the fruit of His Spirit. And since we know that He considers all of His children one, all of us one people, we know that His love makes us love all people. And so where the fruit of the Spirit is evident, there is love for each other with no separation. For such an amazing hope of that kingdom invading earth, for John sitting there in that prison cell, there is a word that's reserved for this moment. And in the Bible, there's a very powerful technique that we use to interpret Scripture. It's called the law of first mention. In other words, when a word 
is used for the very first time, it means that it is set aside and designated for this moment to give it extra impact and extra magnitude. This word you're not going to believe. It's used in the book of Psalms a lot, but not again until this moment. That word is hallelujah. Hallelujah meaning praise and yah, which means Yahweh or Lord or God. Listen to this, Revelation 19, 1 to 6. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, the great multitude of every nation and tribe and tongue shouting together. And what did they shout? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders, that's us, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. There it is again like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. You got to understand in the ancient world, they had no jets. They didn't have anything that created much power. The most powerful thing that they knew of was thunder. Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, the loudest thing that they can possibly imagine in this moment. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. This word reserved for this moment. Of the great multitude of every nation, tongue and tribe, shouting in unity. Oh, the kingdom of heaven. I want that kingdom right now. And we're called to pray for it, so it is very possible. And here's the beauty of it. Is that this is the nature of a follower of Jesus because the fruit of his spirit is this love. There's a lady named Heidi who adopts hundreds of kids in Africa. And she's very well known there. There's a lot of witch doctors who want to kill her because they look so weak compared to her. They say that her healings and deliverances are in, immeasurable. And this one witch doctor showed up to her place with his wife. And they had two enormous snakes. And they had intended to kill her. They knocked on her door, and as she opened the door, she saw him. She said that his eyes were bloodshot. He started just screaming curses at her. He sharpened his own teeth, and his wife was behind in just a state of frenzy. And Heidi looked at this scene, and she looked directly at the man in front, the witch doctor, she looked right into his eyes and she said this to him. She said, you look so tired. She said, come here. And she embraced him. And this man just started to weep. And after a while, she said, I want you to go around the house and grab the two shovels. We're killing your snakes and we're going to bury them in the yard. And that's what they did. 
and they prayed together. They gave their lives to Jesus. You see, Heidi, instead of seeing a witch doctor from a different race, she looked into their eyes and she saw children of God. You were created for this. This is actually our very nature. Scripture says that whenever we're filled with the Spirit, that we will prophesy. And the problem is that this word prophesy has a lot of baggage to it, but it's actually really simple. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says this, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. What it's saying is that you're revealing their true identity from the very heart of God to who he made them to be. You're speaking into their identity as children of God. This summer when we went on the ark, as I looked at the kids that were coming, I thought to myself, this is going to be the worst summer we've ever had. Every one of our difficult kids was coming this summer. And I'm like, this is going to be very hard. And what we did this summer is we just spent lots of time praying for each one of our kids, and we prayed prophetic prayers of identity. We just simply asked God who you created them to be. Who are they? What's beautiful about them? And we prayed this to them. We just spoke who God thinks that they are and how he loves them. And this transformed them. We all get to do this every day with our children. We all get to do this every day with our friends, with our brothers and sisters, with our parents, with our colleagues, with our neighbors. We get to actually speak life from the Father to them, words of identity. When we were in Portland, we came across these two really great guys. There were these two African-American guys, and there was another um, guy from Mexico beside them. And we went up, and we just we asked to pray for them. And they, they accepted, and so we prayed. And then we just talked for about two or three hours. These were the most amazing guys. One of them was an ex-professional box instructor, like boxer instructor. And he taught like many of the great heavyweight champions of the world. This guy was absolutely amazing. And the kids just spoke words of truth and life into them. And as we're sitting there praying for them, people would come and take our pictures. And one lady came up to me, and she said, this is so beautiful. We were just in the middle of a park, just praying for them. And she, I just said, like, why? She said, it's so rare. You're all different colors. <laughs> and our kids were like, what? Why is this rare? You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to take the separation in our world and to remove it. We're called to look beyond appearance and look into eyes and see a child of God who so desperately needs to be reunited or united for the first time with their creator. We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you, in what ways in your own heart have you created separation, either in your world or in your family? I look at the original story of Thanksgiving. Of two people groups dancing, wrestling, praying for a week, celebrating love for each other. I see a kingdom of heaven where there's no sea. I hear a multitude of millions upon millions shouting hallelujah from every race, every nation, every tongue. Oh, Jesus, bring that to earth and use us as your body. Let's just pray. God, 
Lord, our, our world is desperate for your kingdom to come. So Jesus, I pray that your kingdom would come. Jesus, I pray that you would use this body to remove the separation that we see in our place, God. Lord, I pray that Kelowna would be a place marked for incredible brotherly love. God, I pray that for each one of us in our hearts, Lord, that you'd renew us, God. I pray that you'd renew our minds, God. That hurtful stereotypes, God, that by your spirit you would just remove right now. God, for prejudice that has been taught into us would be removed by your spirit, God. Jesus, I pray for just the great hope that you showed John and have revealed to us, God, of your kingdom that we are a part of. God, that separation will be done away with. And we get to be a part of that. Jesus, I pray that this church would be an absolute city on a hill in this community, God. God, I pray right now that as we worship you, God, as we shout hallelujah together. God, that the power that you intended for that word to signal a kingdom that has no separation, a kingdom where you, Jesus, hold the keys to death and Hades. Oh, God would just be so prevalent in our hearts, God. And I pray that we would go from this place so full of your Holy Spirit God, speaking words of incredible life into everybody around our households today and at work on Monday or Tuesday and at school. Jesus, let us be bearers of the greatest hope. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that we get to be your ambassadors. We pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.